This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com, the Big Change Program, and Well Start Health. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a bold and beneficial life. So today's show is going to air some dirty little secrets. My guest, Eric Krieg, spent decades in the belly of the beast, the benefits industry beast, that is, until one day he asked a profoundly inconvenient question, am I doing the right thing? And by way of answer, he left his job as a traditional health benefits broker and went rogue, revealing the ethically questionable practices of the benefits industry to the world. And putting his career where his mouth is, he formed the anti-brokerage firm, Risk International, a firm that advises companies on how to navigate the benefits industry and make decisions in their own best interests. And rather getting paid on commission, Risk International is fee-for-service, a rare case of financial transparency in the health benefits world. All right, so you're wondering, what the heck is a benefits broker doing on a podcast that typically features doctors, activists, farmers, behavioral scientists, and people who have made profound transformations in their lives? Well, it turns out that Krieg's industry, the benefits industry, may hold the key to real reform of the American healthcare system, the kind of reform that can enable lifestyle medicine and plant-based nutrition to take their rightful place as first-line treatments rather than fringe options or afterthoughts. Before we get to our conversation, a couple of things. First of all, know you're not imagining things. This is the third episode this week. I mentioned earlier that I have a backlog that could, you know, take me into the uh, second Malia Obama administration if I don't start uh, putting them out quicker. So that's what's going on. And I'll probably be doing that for the next couple of weeks as well. Second, we're running a new cohort of the Big Change Program, now part of Well Start Health, starting on May 14th. If you'd like to apply for the program, go to wellstarthealth.com slash program. And if you want to get a feel for what it's all about, check out the description at bigchangeprogram.com. The details will be different, but the spirit is the same. And finally, if you want to do a good deed for under $3 and get one of the best plant-based cookbooks I have ever seen, go to plantyourself.com slash timbook, T-I-M-B-O-O-K. That will take you to the Amazon link for my friend Tim Kaufman's book, The Fat Man's Essential 40 Plant-Based Recipes. You may remember Tim as a guest on this show. He is one of the truly amazing superstars of the health movement, of the plant-based movement, you could check out his uh, website and blog, fatmanrants.com. And what I love about Tim, and I've eaten with him a bunch of times, his food is incredibly delicious, and it is so simple, and it's not, it's not even recipes. It's just like ideas, things to throw together, techniques, you know, how to make the perfect uh, oil-free fries and chips, hearty food like sloppy joes and, and meatballs and corn fritters and... Uh, black bean dip and fruit salad and cauliflower wings and walnut blondies and marinara sauce and all this great stuff. If you or anyone you know is like into plant-based eating, but you're just struggling because it takes so much time and you have to keep finding recipes or you're getting a little bit bored, this is the best $2.99 you will ever spend. And here's why it's such a good deed. I've gotten to know Tim and Heather Kaufman over the last few years. They are tireless advocates 
for this lifestyle. Tim lost, you know, over 200 pounds. He's become an ultra endurance athlete in spite of having a, a debilitating joint disease. Like the more people who know their story, the more people we will win over in this movement. And this book is the first time they have ever tried to make a buck from their plant-based advocacy. They will travel all over the country for free, giving talks, doing workshops. They both work full-time. And I see this as a little wedge into their consciousness to say, yep, we can do this stuff and we can get paid for it, which means we can devote our lives to it. So again, plantyourself.com slash Tim book. I'm certain that you will love it and get a tremendous amount of value from it. Okay, with all that out of the way, let's get to it. Let's talk about the health insurance benefits industry. So without further ado, Eric Krieg, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you, Howard. So I wanted to talk to you because I have just, you know, joined Wellstart Health after being sort of in, in sort of private individual focused practice for a long time. And I've just been shocked at what I've discovered about the healthcare system about and and particularly the sort of invisible to the public part the employer benefits healthcare dance and i reached out to you after reading an article that you wrote uh, online i think in cleveland cranes business and it was just really hard hitting uh, article that explained things really really well and so i invited you and you kindly said yes to help uh, help me and my listeners understand this uh, this whole scenario. So thank you for being here. Well, I, I enjoyed the uh, the topic and uh, enlightening as many people as possible, Howard. Great. So let, let's start with, uh, with who you are and your background so people can have a sense of where you're coming from. Certainly. It's a very exciting background, Howard. Uh, so my background is in the benefits industry my entire career. Uh, it is, uh, expands over 30 years. Um, and what's interesting when you do something for that long, working for a major insurance company uh, in the brokerage world, in the consulting world, uh, you get a certain way of doing things. And having done it for so long and seeing just poor results over and over and over. And as good as you think you are and you're doing the best you can, just figured there's got to be a better way. And so, goodness, about five years ago, I had the opportunity to found Risk International Benefits Advisors. And I did it within a firm who was already doing outsourced risk management work. And the fit was so, seemed so perfect because what we're all about is that we are not a part of the industry. So I was in industry for a long, long time. And when you get out of it, it's amazing to see how things open up and how the perspective change. And really, you look at things with a very different lens. And you realize all those things that you're trying to do, or you're working on behalf of employers to get things done, you say, wow. Was I really doing the right things? Was I really uh, taking a look on behalf of my clients uh, as well as I as well as I thought I was? And, and, and candidly, what I found is I wasn't. Mm. And so, so we're we're in a we're in a, a world uh, that's that's quite different now. Gotcha. So so I'd like to kind of start with fundamentals because I'm imagining that lots of my audience, like myself, doesn't really understand what the industry is. 
So can you kind of describe like what you did, like what, what the benefits industry is and how it, uh, how it functions and, and how it connects to, you know, the, the organizations, the, the corporations and nonprofits that it's a part of? Sure. And, and that makes sense, Howard. Uh, you know, the, sometimes we take things for granted here. But, you know, if you look at the ben- benefits industry, it's made up of insurance companies. And the insurance companies are going to be a myriad of, of organizations, the big names out there that we all know about providing health insurance. And then we have the pharmacy benefit managers that may be attached to the insurance companies are separate. Then we have other insurance companies who provide not medical and RX, but they're providing dental and life and disability and those kinds of programs. And then what's happened is that you have a myriad of other vendors who have come into the space of benefits to offer services support, a lot who, who are trying to offer cost mitigation strategies and whatnot. And, you know, somehow, some way they're going to attach to the system. And maybe they're a part of you know, the wellness world, possibly they are part of things like uh, disease management and chronic conditions or even more highly specified things. And then what you have that's a part of this entire industry really are the brokers slash consultants. And I say brokers consultants because they really have blended together. The big names that we used to think of as consultants, they're, they're brokers, they're selling a product, they've developed their own products, uh, or they're selling for the industry. Uh, and then, you know, brokers now want to call themselves consultants so they'll get put into the broker basket. But ultimately, those organizations position themselves to work on behalf of their the employer uh, for their clients. But I think the, the dirty little secret, and really shouldn't be a secret, it's the distribution arm for the benefits industry. It's the sales channel. They sell. The, the um, insurance companies, they don't have a sales force. And so their sales force are the brokers and consultants to get their products out into the marketplace. Okay, so, so for myself, let's, let's, let's start with a real simple example that I can understand. So I've been self-employed for a long time, so I don't have a default plan or any default person to talk to. So I, before the ACA, I just, you know, asked her my neighbors, who's a good um, insurance agent in the area. And it was a small company, you know, in Chapel Hill, not too far from me. And they, I told them what I had and they said, okay, here's a couple of plans. And here's the one that probably would fit you the best. And so I signed up for it. And then I started getting um, bills from some insurance company, and I started paying them. And my assumption was that my broker was just working for me to find me the best deal. And it never occurred to me that they were getting, you know, I thought that, well, probably they're getting some percentage of what I pay. They're getting a referral fee. Um, but it, it's, it's more complicated than that, isn't it? It, it certainly is. So here, here's what you have. And, and, you know, I think that's a nice, pretty simple, straightforward example. Uh, your broker probably, you know, they may have looked at one company, they may lo- have looked at a couple of companies, and they may know, based on what they know about you, they put you in what they felt was the best plan. And so you don't pay them, the insurance company pays them. In that case, they pay them some form of 
likely commission. So a percentage of the premium that you're paying is going to that broker for the distribution, right? For the sale of that particular program. In addition to that, there are a lot of different channels for compensation to come. In the simple example that you, you gave, the broker may be set up with it, a couple of their favorite insurance companies where they have most of their business, and they're going to have additional compensation in the way of an, you know, terms of override supplemental comp bonus compensation. And what that does is that rewards that broker for placing new business and for retaining business. So just think about that. So they're rewarded for new business. Makes sense for the insurance company. Maybe it makes sense for their client. And then they're rewarded for retaining the business. So you start seeing right there where the potential conflict of interest can come into play. You know, are they serving your needs first and foremost? Or are they serving the needs of the insurance company? And some balance that goes into that. Meaning if I come back and say, okay, things have changed, I need a new plan, and they're going to get some sort of retention bonus, then they're much more likely to want to stick me into the same, into Blue Cross or, or, or Cigna or, U, or uh, U.S. Healthcare to, to keep me there, even if there's another plan that might be marginally or even more than marginally better for me. Yes. So that, so, really so that they have, a, they have a conflict of interest. Yes. Yes, they do. Gotcha. And what happens with it, I want to make sure that we paint this picture correctly. In doing their work, it becomes just a way of doing business. And they don't see the conflict of, of, of interest. They, you know, they believe that they've put you with a solid insurance program, and it's a good solution for you. The question always becomes, is it the best solution? So for you know for me if I'm paying three hundred or four hundred dollars a month or you know I could maybe save fifteen dollars or get a little bit of a better deal on prescription drugs like it's an annoyance but it's not like it's not enough of a topic to have a podcast conversation about I don't think or maybe it is but this is like a this is a much bigger issue than 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 the simple example that we just gave can you talk a little bit about the scope of of what you see as the problems in the healthcare and the benefits industry that are, that are like serious societal issues? Yes. So what you have is that we, we've got this big animal and everybody in some way, shape or form hears about it, reads about it, understands that healthcare costs seem to continue to rise. It doesn't, you know, everything that's done to try to stem the, the, the tide it uh, just doesn't quite make it. You've got all of the noise around the Affordable Care Act. And what occurs with this is that people stay in the system about how things are done. And I hope I just can do better than, than the average company. And let's just say that the average trend increase this year is 7%. And I did 5%. Or I put myself against some benchmark. And it's just better. And so that's, that's good. I've done my job as the benefits manager, as the director of, of benefits at my company. You know, we're just fighting the good fight. 
And what most employers don't understand is that, you know, within the spend, and so if you think about it, an employer is going to spend on average, let's just call it $12,000 per employee per year covered on just their medical and RMX program. Now, obviously, that number is going to vary a bit by employer, and there's a lot of factors for it. But the incremental increase every year that the employer is trying to manage and then determining how much of that cost comes shifted back to the employee. And this is really where we're finding a tipping point, that too much of the cost management strategies that have been deployed by employers over the last 10 years have been shifting costs to the employee. And this has really just hammered middle-income America. The disposable income impact based upon meager wage increases versus significant increases to the payroll contribution that an employee has and much, much greater deductibles and out-of-pocket costs. And you've got somebody who's on average, I think the median income in America is about $58,000. So you've got a person, a family, and, and they're, they're in that kind of a wage bracket <laughs> And they're expected to pay a $5,000, $10,000 out-of-pocket if they have any significant health care costs. They don't have a prayer of paying it. They can't do it. They don't have the money. They don't have the, 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 the savings and disposable income to, uh, to do that. So that's really put a major burden on employees. Right. So, and the... And we don't, you know, we don't hear a lot about about that from from employees. I mean, occasionally there'll be sort of a union fight that will that will center a little bit on benefits. But is, is there something like psychological about like if you if I see the pay increase, which is a definite, like I've just got you know seventy eight more dollars in my my weekly paycheck than I had before, like I can see that and believe it. But if you increase my out of pocket or my deductibles, that's not real. That doesn't feel like real money because I have, because it's not a definite or I don't have to pay it now. Are there like psychological things going on that, that we, we aren't all in revel in revolt against this? Well, Howard, you hit it. And, and, you know, first of all, what happens to too many employees is that they, they do get some, let's say it's a meager increase uh, in their wage. It's quickly eroded by the actual increase in their, payroll contribution for the cost of their benefit plan. And you do see it where somebody actually ends up in a negative, that the increase is greater uh, in their cost for benefits than their increase in pay. So they could end up net negative. In addition to that, to your point, the invisible thing is the deductible and the out-of-pocket change that in fact, Maybe somebody's paying attention to it. Maybe they're not. But I can tell you when they do pay attention to it is when they went into the healthcare system and they had some maybe relatively significant expenses and the bills start hitting and they can't pay them. All right. um, so you know, I, I know that, uh, that health insurance being paid by employers is an artifact of, of some rules after World War II where they, there was a restrictions on the type of, of uh, salary increases they could they could provide. I would think that, you know, in, at least in certain sectors in a very competitive marketplace, 
that you'd have employers not wanting to shift the burden, but touting like really good benefits plans to keep employees, especially if we know that, you know, beyond a certain amount, money isn't really that much of a motivator as opposed to like recognition or a free pizza or like a cool deal. Um, are there companies that are, that are, you know, not passing on these costs to employees? And if so, what's, what's the, what's the cost to their bottom line and their competitiveness? You know, it's a great point. So one thing, I'll, you know, I think an important point that everybody should understand is that every employer basically, especially, you know, let's say that, um, you know, you get employers, once they're above maybe a few hundred covered employees, they're running a health, a health insurance plan. Basically, they are a health insurance company. I think a lot of employers don't view it that way because they've employed a health insurance company or some entities to do this on their behalf. But ultimately, that's what they are. So they have to make these decisions. And the question becomes this. When you say that, you're um, like, what's what's the basis for that? Because it reminds me a little bit of like Ray Kroc saying that McDonald's is actually a real estate company who sells hamburgers. Is it like... Mm -hmm. What what do you mean when you say that every company with a significant number of employees is a healthcare company? Because what they are doing is their costs are all associated with claims and they have to set up what is their cost structure? How are they going to mitigate risk? What is their approach to managing this um, this huge expense that they have every year? And they have a lot of decisions to make. And it's not like the health insurance company is taking the risk. They're really taking the risk. Now, they may buy, you know, most of them until they get very large, are going to buy some form of stop loss insurance to help them manage that risk. But that's just a component of it. So they're in, they're in control and a lot more control than they quite frankly think they are to, okay, I'm going to make decisions about what this plan looks like what my employees pay for it. I'm going to look at what I want to use to help control the costs of this plan. And I'm going to, I'm going to make the final decisions about I, how I end up setting the rates given the experience and my fixed cost. So all of that is what a health insurance company does. And that's what an employer ends up doing. Okay. So, so you just said something that, I, if I understood correctly, blew my mind, which is that the insurance companies aren't taking the risk like that's, I thought that was their whole reason for being. Well, think about it. So when you're fully insured, yes, the insurance company takes the risk fully. But once you get over a few hundred employees, even when you're fully insured, the insurance company is rating you all based on your own experience. And they're going to set up rates that reflect how your people are using the plan. And while it is a fully insured premium, the insurance company is setting it up to make money, which they should. They're a for-profit business. But they're going to set margin in there so that they are making money. One of the fallacies are, even for the fully insured uh, groups, is that, well, goodness, the insurance company, you know, they'll take on the risk and then, you know, I'll be fine. And, and that's right for smaller employers. But the larger they are, if they're fully insured, ultimately... They may be fully insured, but they're going to pay the full boat for that cost, plus the margin of the insurance company's uh, cost structure. Uh-huh. So the insurance and companies then, are more of a sort of a cash flow management tool 
that if, you know, if, you, if, you, if you have a crazy set of claims this year, they'll they'll float you, but they're going to ding you next year with with increased premiums. Yeah, think about it. Why the you know insurance health insurance right is very fluid. You know the claims are happening. They're happening. They're they're being incurred and they're being paid. And while huge claims may take longer than a normal claim, uh, it's not like there's some big tail liability on this thing. It's it's all happening right in front of us. So the cash flow mechanism is exactly what you're dealing with. And on occasion, the insurance company is going to going to lose on a very maybe a, a larger, a very um, few larger claims uh, that they can't recoup immediately. But for the most part, they're recouping. And they're, and if we look at the insurance, look at the health insurance company stocks over the last five years, and you'd be amazed at the growth that they've had. And I don't want to quote the number because I don't have it on the top of my head, but I believe it was uh, in excess of about a 50% return on their stocks. Wow. And, th- and that's uh, all, all while everyone's screaming about the, uh, the, the the effects of the ACA and on you know and the volatility of the industry. No question, and there's so much noise out there, and so you see noise in so many different ways, shapes, and forms. But the health insurance companies are doing very well. the The industry as a whole is doing very well. The the other one that I would point you to is the brokerage industry. You're seeing lots of roll-ups going on where the the people who are large are buying. People who want to get large are buying. And they're buying because it's very lucrative. Buy, the buying what? In the, they're buying each other. So they're... Okay. The brokers are buying each other. The large ones are buying smaller brokers. The medium-sized ones are buying smaller brokers. You have private equity money that's flowing into this. The broker, the benefits brokerage industry is a $20 billion a year industry. And it has very healthy margins. And so what occurs is you have these players involved who are doing really well managing something for their clients and their clients aren't doing well. Their clients are dealing with these escalating costs and having to figure out how they're going to manage that given their business setting and their industry as they're looking to, to uh, attract and retain good people. Gotcha. So I'm, I'm calling back my one semester of econ 101. And what I rem- what I remember from that is something called the efficient market hypothesis, which is if if there's not a monopoly, then and there's if there's this industry in which the employers and the employees are all unhappy. Everyone's unhappy about what they're paying for healthcare and the value they're receiving, and the experience of of trying to pry that money from insurance companies. And the industry is doing extremely well with very healthy margins. Why aren't there, why hasn't the system been replaced by something that's more efficient and that people like better? Well, it's a a great question. Uh, And, you know, I think it is such a very complex area that we're dealing with because we're dealing with so many variables that make the econ 101 not hold up very effectively. So what are they? 
it's a third party payer system. So we have a third party paying on, pay, on behalf of people's expenses. That means that normal consumerism, as much as we talk about high deductible consumer plans, normal consumerism just doesn't take hold. In addition to that, uh, we're, we're dealing with the cost of entry, the capital necessary for a competitor to come in and really make a difference, to come in and shake up the industry and change things. We're dealing with the fact that we have the government paying over 50% of all healthcare costs in the country through things like Medicare and Medicaid. And, and we have the healthcare providers and how their reimbursement systems are set up. And there's so much different between government reimbursements versus private payer reimbursements uh, and the relationships between uh, these healthcare providers and the government and the healthcare providers in the commercial insurance market. Wow. So, so it seems like this, this sort of Byzantine set of equilibria that um, it'd be very hard for, for, for one non-billionaire to, uh, to affect very much. Yeah, so you're seeing interesting things occur. And so what are those? You know, when, when we saw the, uh, the likes of um, J.P. Morgan, um, Amazon, and uh, Berkshire Hathaway come together, They've come together to say, we can't take it anymore. We're going to try to do something. Amazon, of those three, is the very interesting animal who my thought is they're going to come in and try to make an impact because there is a business opportunity. You see the likes of what a, what a Walmart is trying to do to attract people uh, based upon having, you know, uh, on-site facilities available for their customers for basic rudimentary healthcare needs. You see the likes of a, uh, of a, of a CVS uh, who is setting up these clinics. So you're seeing some things occurring that, is, that are going to challenge maybe stand, the standard way that people have access healthcare. You're seeing telemedicine come into play. So you've got to create efficiencies within the marketplace to allow, you know, what's happening in so many other industries that really haven't, hasn't quite hit healthcare, to allow efficiencies and to either drive down costs or at least to stabilize costs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that, that's one thing that was, that was coming to me when we were talking earlier about the burden of, the, of healthcare on employers and employees is, well, maybe, you know, maybe we need to be paying this. It's unfortunate, but people are getting sicker. And, you know, we have the best healthcare system in the world. And so we have more advancements. Wait, Howard, 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 what would you just say? <laughs> well, this is a softball setup, isn't it? Okay. We, you, <laughs> I, want, I want to make sure I knew where you're going with this. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is, this is I, I would think, what people, pe what people believe, right? Of course, you know, we, we have all these machines. You go to the doctor, you go to the hospital. There's always a new machine. There's always a new test. You know, the American Cancer Society is always touting that we were just, you know, a couple more decades away from a breakthrough. Like we have the best, you know, technologies and systems in the world. So it's understandable that we're paying all this money for these outcomes. But that's not how you see it, is it? Well, I think the numbers, I mean, with the um, World Health Care Organization, I think the United States ranks um, 
37th in the world uh, with, with healthcare quality and by far spending the most. I mean, we spend whatever, some $3. trillion a year, $3. trillion uh, in, in this arena. And yet our overall healthcare quality is, is nowhere near the top. And it's interesting because this whole debate about, you know, the private, the importance of not having a single health payer system and how that's detrimental to people's care and health. Uh, and I'm not here to debate that. I don't want to go down that road right now. Um, but many of these countries who are in the top 10 are dealing with a single health care payer system. Mm. Well, so what, what is it about that system that, that seems to rationalize care so that um, it's, it provides more value? I, I think the challenge that you have overall is the ability just to say, are we, are we going to just give health care to everybody or not? Because some way, shape, or form, they're going to get health care. It's just a matter of how you decide to provide it and how you decide to pay for it. You know, we're using a private system outside of the government system right now. And, you know, that is such a um, heated topic for debate by many people who have just different fundamental views of, of the role of government and private enterprise and things of that nature. But here's what we know, and it's not debatable. Everybody's going to receive health care if they have the money to pay for it or not. What also is not debatable, if you really don't have health care coverage or you really can't afford it, what you do have, you're going to end up not getting care when you really need it. And you're going to end up costing the system more money. Meaning you'll, uh, you'll wait until the, the little thing has become a big thing. You'll go to, to the emergency room at 2 a.m. Uh, and and uh, you know, drain a lot of resources when it, it might have been something that could have been handled by one of these CVS clinics for 15 bucks, like, you know, eight months ago. Absolutely. Yes. So what, uh, how, how is the, the benefit industry sort of, you know, keeping things stuck or right. So if, if I mean, one of, you know, so if one of the issues is um, poor access to care or the wrong care, uh, like you'd think it was just, okay, so there's, there's people like me who need medical care sometimes. And then there's the medical profession, doctors, nurses, hospitals, um, you know, other health professionals. And my assumption before getting into all this was that like, they were the ones getting rich. Like, you know, I was getting mad at the doctors and the hospital systems and it's hard to get mad at nurses, but, but, um, like, you know, is, is that not the problem that they're, uh, performing all these unnecessary procedures and calling for all these um, questionable diagnostics because that just increases their bottom line. Like, how does that play into the whole system that we're talking about? Yeah, I think the healthcare providers, um, you know, it's it's easy to point the finger at people, but it's such a, a so much more complex. I mean, I think our our healthcare providers are trying to do good things for their patients across the board. Now what happens, they're in a system. 
and that system, they're working within the confines of that system. So if I'm working at a large hospital system and I'm a physician and I need to order tests, those tests are going to stay right within the healthcare system. And that may not be the right place for those based upon the cost of providing a like service. You know, so whether they're, you know, lab type of tests or other kinds of things that people need, those can be done much more efficiently efficiently in other settings. But the healthcare providers are part of the system. And so they're just, <clears throat> you know, they, they have a lot of pressure on them to provide care. And so you're going to you're going to just work within the rules that have been established around you. And so you have this big healthcare system, you know, and, and they're, you know, determining you know, what they are and what they're all about. And when you see, they just continue to build, build, build. I don't know who builds more healthcare systems or colleges and universities. Um, you know, and the question is, you know, are they really taking a look into the future about the most effective way to deliver care. You know, there's no question. You, you think about it, we see where big box retail is going, has gone. You know, think about 10 years from now. You know, who's sitting, who's going to be sitting around in a waiting room waiting for a physician? Is that really the best thing to do? Huh. Yet the system is all structured to, to provide care in that manner. So you're going to see, you know, we're going to see such major change over the next 10 years. And the, the real question is who's going to survive, you know, within these healthcare systems. And obviously they, they have some wonderful services and some wonderful specialties that are important to uh, people in the country. But I would make the same comment about the health insurance companies. You know, I think they're ready to go the way of big box retail because really what are they providing in the way of value today? Under the current model, the real value has been the network arrangements with physicians and healthcare systems. That's been their value. Otherwise, they're a plan administrator and a claims adjudicator, and that's a commodity service. Uh Because all the other things that they're doing to try to to control healthcare just really are, are coming into play. And what's a little known fact is that is that Medicare pricing sets the baseline for all reimbursements to the healthcare system. And people are enamored when they're in the commercial system. They see, well, I'm, I'm with XYZ insurance company and I got a 50% discount. Oh my gosh, that's wonderful. Understand that the original bill that was submitted on average was 550% of that Medicare reimbursement. And now it's only 275%. It makes no sense. And so we have this love-hate relationship that healthcare providers don't really like the health insurance companies and the health insurance companies are really fighting the good fight. But if the health insurance companies don't have those networks, their value equation is, is hammered. And the providers are held up, are, are holding up their margins based upon getting those levels of reimbursements from the health insurance companies. Hmm. Right. So if, if, if you are um, advising the CEO of a company or, you know, so 
anyone who is interested in the financial health of an organization and the health of its employees, what do we do? Uh, what what are our options until you know the, the system shakes out and and rationalization and efficiency you know re- rears its its sweet heads again? Well, first of all, the the scrutiny of what all of their current arrangements is nowhere near what it should be. There is a the the way these programs are managed way too frequently is let's see what we can do just to mitigate our increase in cost and not change too much. As a matter of fact, I saw a study recently that about 54% of the people on the employer and managing their health plans think they've just run out of rope. There's nothing more they can do. Yet they're still within the the standard confines of, of where they've been for the last 10 years. And so the question is, you know, what are your vendor contracts and relationships really providing you? Do you really understand it? And are you able to get the most out of it? And have you really looked at all of the various ways that somebody can provide services for you, whether it be a health insurance company, or what could you do with a third-party administrator? And what might they do that's more effective? The, the PBMs, you know, those contracts, um, What's the majority a PBM? of people don't understand. A PBM, so the pharmacy benefit manager, those are the ones who are providing the prescription drugs gotcha. uh, for employees. Those contracts are extremely complex, and uh, that complexity is a friend of the industry. It keeps the industry in control. Uh-huh. So it is really the, the ability to dissect these things and understand where can you find improvements. And while you may as an employer not be able to change the world, because that's not your business. It's not really what you should be doing, but you've got to treat it like, well, given that's your second or third largest expense, employers need to put more of their own resources on this, scrutinizing the spend like they do other major spends uh, versus just allowing their broker and consultant to guide them down this path of, um, of high margin for the system. So I know a lot of people who um, who work for companies, and they'll they'll talk about the pain of submitting their expense reports. Like they go on a trip, and there's a question like, "Did you when you rented this car? Did you get this? You know, the the prepaid tank of gas, and was that the best deal? And you ate at this restaurant, and did, you know, did you how many bottles of wine did you have? And so there's somebody at the company who's who's comfortable scrutinizing these line items that probably add up per, per person to maybe like $109 a year. And you're saying that's not being done for this, I guess healthcare is the second biggest line item for any organization after payroll. And they're, and they're not, they're not paying attention to inputs and outputs. Well, what happens is it's, it's on an Island. It's on an Island and, and the, the benefits managers, directors, whatnot, they're doing the best that they feel, you know, what they know, but they're not getting support. And it, it seems as though people have accepted within corporate America that this thing, there's just only so much you can do with it. And so it is the ability to put much greater scrutiny. People who are used to really um, stringent vendor management protocols, contract management pr- protocols, 
and really understand, well, what is it that I bought? And what are the provisions within my arrangement? Am I actually getting what I bought? Am I not getting what I bought? Is it time that I do something different? And what might that look like? Mm. So are we talking about, um, you know, let's, let's say for a, a mid-sized or small company, some, someone who doesn't have the influence and clout of an Amazon or a, or a Walmart or Berkshire Hathaway or J.P. Morgan, and are, is, are we saying that they need to negotiate harder with existing players, that there's a lot of fat in those contracts that can be, um, you know, excised? Or are we saying there's other, other places to go, other options, or is it a combination? It's a combination. They could be sitting on a very fat arrangement. They could be buying services that, that are providing no return. Uh, they could be in a position, you know, it's really interesting. You know, the, uh, the whole world of uh, fiduciary responsibility has gotten a lot of attention to retirement plans. It has not gotten anywhere near the same attention to health and welfare plans. And it's, it's putting what I would call our standard management protocols around the understanding of what you have and how it should be managed and to take on that responsibility, lead responsibility internally at the business and having the likes of the brokers, consultants, and the other vendors working for you versus them really being in control. Mm. So help, help me understand that in terms of, let's say, like what, what you do, because you said you spent 30 years in the industry and now with... Um, um, you're, you're, you're not in the industry anymore with risk international benefits advisors. Correct. What, you know, our, the way we've structured our business is so that you know, we only work for our clients. They're the only ones who will ever pay us a cent. So we are not a part of the system. We are not a broker. We don't place products and do those types of things, but our calling is to help employers figure out a better way within what they've constructed, within options outside of what they've constructed, and to open up the black box for them. We love that. We have fun doing that. Here, let's, it's, we're behind the curtain. This is how this thing works. How is it working for you? And you know what, what you're trying to do, once again, is find the ability without shifting cost to the employees to cut out the fat and inefficiencies that you can. And there's money there. There's money there 100% of the time. Uh-huh. And, um, but why, why would the industry uh, negotiate with, with you when, you know, when the, their, their standard is, um, you know, we can we can make this money from someone. You know, why, why, right? Why why would I negotiate with somebody smart when I can negotiate with with twenty ignorant people? Well, you know, ultimately the um, the industry wants wants its business, is wants to retain business, and they can still have margin. Just it's not it's not the kind of margin that they may be accustomed to in many different situations. And so it's, you know, it's some of the fundamentals of, of good competitive pressure of somebody's desire to, to retain their business uh, and or somebody else's desire to, to um, 
get new business. Mm-hmm. So, is this, so it all starts with it. It, it also Howard. What I was saying, it all starts with facts, and facts rule the day. When you've got facts and good information, then you become in a in a position when you know how the system works, how to position that in your favor. Gotcha. So is, is there anything else that I should have asked you and didn't or something we didn't talk about or should have or something where, where I asked a question that makes you think that I don't really understand the, the, the complexity or, or, or a key point? You know, I think we've covered a lot in a pretty short period of time. You know, there's so many things when you get into the specifics of any one of the items. I guess what I'll say is that there tends to be a lot of focus on the medical and RX arena, and rightfully so, because it's where the most money is spent. But as a result of that, people do take their eye off of other plans. People take off their, they, they take their eye off of, you know, what are they really doing in the management of their life and disability and dental programs? And, you know, our point is, you know, have a have an effective approach with with everything, and why leave money on the table, especially when it isn't if it isn't having any form of a negative impact on employees. And then the the other item are just the miscellaneous vendors that came into play because there's a good idea or there was a thought that they could help save money. Is that fact or fiction? And it's using data to be able to answer that question. It's not, you know, it's not a concept. Let's, let's, you know, there's a lot of wonderful concepts. Let's get facts. Mm, nice. So if, if someone who's listening to this is a CEO or someone with a, a clear mandate in their organization to, to improve things, to rationalize healthcare, um, they can, you know, listen to this, they can get um, outraged and excited. They can get in touch with you. And I want to, have you share how they can do that. But but first, if someone's listening to this and they're just an employee and they can see, okay, well, I can see how this is costing me out of pocket. Um, I can see how it's threatening the competitiveness of my organization. Is there anything that like rank and file workers can do or do they just have to wait for someone above them to get enlightened? You know, it's, it's a really, it's a great point. And I think that if the if the rank and file employee employees are able to be a part of the solution and do it in such a way that it's not just about you know what's in it for me, but if they know they're doing a greater good for both themselves, their fellow employees, and the company, ultimately, you know, they can say, well, goodness, why don't you give me a choice between X and Y? You did this without me, and I would have. You went X, and 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 eighty percent of us would much prefer Y. Let's go that way. Mm-hmm. So, really, really asking the employees to become a little bit educated on this topic. Correct. Right. I think the employees are, are totally kept out of the loop, and you know, unfortunately, the, the challenge. I, I mean, in the defense of the employer. You know, how many people can you get involved in this decision-making process? And it's so complex that that many, many people just, you know, they come at it from whatever experiences they had. And 
that may or may not be terribly uh, important in managing this whole equation. Right. So it's it's about um, sort of guiding the organization and giving people enough information kind of to do their jobs, like the same way you'd give someone the yeah. information they need to, you know, to to uh, to run Microsoft programs on their computer or to uh, to do payroll or to call customers and, and do customer service. It's um, there's a certain level of. Uh, of education that uh, that employees could benefit from just around understanding both, I guess, their, you know, the, the different plans and how it would affect them, but also their own health choices and health behaviors around like not asking for every test, not assuming that the more expensive it is, the better it will be for them. Yeah. And to, the, to that a point, that point, Howard, what I would say is that all of us, are, are going into the healthcare system, and what do we know? You know, we're, we're going in and we're dealing something with something with for the first time for ourselves or for a family member. It's difficult, and quite frankly, without some type of expert guidance, what do they do? Well, they end up using the system very inefficiently. It's not their fault, but that that guidance can go a long way for better experience for the employee, a better health outcome, and a, a um, fewer dollars being uh, spent on their care. Right. I think about so many people I know who will, you know, um, read, uh, you know, books on investing or books on you know, money management. I will teach you to be rich or uh, like, you know, the old Jane Bryan Quinn stuff or Dave Ramsey. And they're really like it's their hobby is that money management after the fact that after their paycheck. But it's like a little bit of education could save them a lot off the top. It would be a much better return on investment than than how to kind of beat the stock market with with, um, you know, diminished income over time. Yeah, certainly. I agree 100 percent. All right, so for, for people who do have um, decision-making and should have fiduciary responsibility over this, how can they get in touch with you? Oh, goodness, I think email is probably the best way, uh, Howard. And my, uh, my email is uh, E, as in Eric, Krieg, K-R-I-E-G, at riskinternational.com. Okay, riskinternational.com. So people can find out more about the company, I assume, at riskinternational.com? Correct, yes. Okay. And so just um, to, for, for clarity's sake, what might somebody be experiencing or feeling or thinking that would, that would let you know that they would, be, they would benefit from a conversation with you? Like, are there, are there things that... that you know, are going on or things that are keeping them up at three in the morning, that, that if someone's having that set of thoughts and experiences and feelings that they should call you right away? You know, that's, you know, here's what we have found uh, is that there's people who, who just do become frustrated and they want to understand, is there a better way? And absolutely they should. Uh, candidly, uh, there's a lot of people who are accepting what's going on right now and not really feeling there's much more they can do about it. They're doing everything they can. You know, maybe they should have a, a different um, view on that. 
Uh huh. So, um, so the, the people who are mad as hell and aren't going to take this anymore should call you right away, right? The the Howard Beals. Um, yeah. I, yes. And anyone who doesn't that feel that way should should call should, should pay, call us right away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And anyone who doesn't yet feel that way should should wake up and pay attention. Yes. Great. Well, Eric, thank you so much. I feel like you've really helped me and I hope my listeners understand the complexities because, you know, on this podcast, we talk a lot about sort of, you know, the efficiencies of being in good health, right, of eating well, of moving properly, of um, public policy that promotes nature. And we can get very myopic. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's the huge piece, but it's not the whole piece. And so, so understanding how, how some of these complexities of the system uh, work can help us understand both how to uh, find partnerships with people like you who are doing, you know, a similar mission but on different fronts, and also to help us understand how we, can, we are being less effective by not understanding these systems and by just butting our heads against the, the should-be world instead of acknowledging the, the, the world as it is. So I want to thank you so much for the work you do, um, for, for the writing that you put out into the world to, uh, to educate people and for taking the time today. Howard, thank you. And, 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 uh, you know, keep up the good fight. Will do. And I, I look forward to, uh, I, I'm going to see you in DC. Yes. Cool. So I, I look forward to that as well to give you a, a handshake and a thank you in person. So, uh, thanks again and be well. All right. I'd love to know what you thought of that interview. I think it was very much in line with the mission of the Plant Yourself podcast, even though it was about a somewhat esoteric financial topic. I'm also curious whether after listening to this, you're optimistic or pessimistic about where things are going, about whether there's opportunity here or whether things are just going to keep getting worse and worse because of these sort of financial handcuffs. And you know, a really easy way to get back to me on that is to go to the webpage that has this episode on it, which is plantyourself.com slash 265, and scroll down to Talk Back. And there's a little app there called SpeakPipe. You can just click a button and talk right into your computer's microphone and tell me what you think. And that would be really cool because I pay like 100 bucks a year for it. And so far, I've only gotten one or two responses because I haven't promoted it very well. So uh, if you're interested in uh, letting me know what you think, that would be cool. And you know what else would be cool? If you were to take a few seconds and do a totally free thing, and that is to leave a review on iTunes. I don't exactly know how all the hocus pocus happens and behind the scenes and the Apple algorithm, but definitely when I get more reviews, more stars, more comments, that definitely boosts the number of new subscribers that the podcast guests gets and the more people we can reach. And if you're looking for a way to support the podcast that involves transferring cash from your bank account to mine, you can do that as well. Just go to plantyourself.com, look on the right sidebar for the Patreon button. And with Patreon, you can give me an an ongoing monthly contribution that really kind of helps me understand my finances month by month and what I'm able to invest in the podcast in terms of time, in terms of new equipment, in terms of reaching out to people, that sort of thing. It's a, it's a huge help because this podcast is and always has been a labor of love. I don't get money from my guests. I don't get money if you buy their stuff, uh, well, with the exception of books on Amazon. But basically, 
Um, this is a service to the world. And if that's something that you would like to support and get your name mentioned in my flurry of thanks that's about to come up, you can do that as well. Okay, on to the fun stuff. In garden news, we've got a whole bunch of keyhole beds up and ready for planting. I'm going to go grab some photos of that and share it on the blog so you can take a look at that at plantyourself.com. In running news, woohoo, yesterday was my first hard run in about a month, pretty much uh, since the marathon in March. And I did hill repeats, and today my calves are letting me know that uh, they don't entirely appreciate what I did, but suck it up calves because there's a lot more of that to come. Okay, cue the music. Will Ridenour, Sabali Don, Dance of Peace on the Cora. Check out willridenour.com and it would be great. You know, he gave me this music to use. He doesn't charge me anything. He doesn't charge me a, a, a monthly fee or, or, or anything. He said, yes, please use it. So, it would be great to thank him for that. If uh, you could go and listen to his stuff on Spotify and maybe even buy an album, check out his merch, check out his uh, tour schedule. He uh, appears solo and also with a, uh, a local Raleigh group called Kairaba. So you can check that all out for willridenour.com. And of course, thanks to all you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Here we go. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara, Whitney, Tammy, Black, Amy, Good, Amanda, Hathaway, Mary Jean Wheeler, Alan Kelly, Alyssa Coffey, Sue Williams, Tristan Tilson, Tina Sharkey, Ahern, Jen Lukanovsky, David Bysak, the mysterious Michelle X, Elvis, Thelma, Victoria, Bill, Lomanova, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Pector, Sal Andrew, Dozino, Lisa Julianne Rowland, Sue Dolnick, Sarah Durkis, Ryan Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzik, Jeanette Benham, Gil, Sarah David, Donnie, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizo, Gio, and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Freezer, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, equally mysterious Tracy Z, Alicia Lemmas, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lindeman, Promise Flynnam, Nick Harper, Stephanie Holmes, Martha Burke, Nicole Ramsey, this was not on Molly Levine. The Inscrutable. Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Band of Eaton, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Ashley Corcoran, Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, Plan Happy Organs, Sabine Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Coppola, Shell Ridley, Julia Watkins, Brito Connell, Brian, Sharon, Shannon Hirschman, Kate Rose, Linda Ayat, Julie Lang, Home Head of Guardians, Zatuzin, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Aviva Lael, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jetson, Sherry Olakoski for Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Mirani, Karen and Joe Crafty, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Kevin, Teresa McCall, ah, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild. Kelly Baker, Miracle, and Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, and welcoming Peter W. Evans. Thank you all so much for your generous support. That's it for this week. I mean it. No more this week. As always, be well, my friends. Mm-hmm.